The book of Hebrews is one of the more challenging books in the New Testament, but no Bible study pain, no theological and practical gain. The book is rich with praise for Jesus Christ and encouragement to his servants, us, to persevere. Dr. Tom Schreiner has written a special kind of commentary on the book of Hebrews in the Evangelical Biblical Theological Commentary series, and I've invited him onto the Bible Study Magazine podcast to continue a discussion of our season three theme, Biblical Theology. We'll focus, of course, on this book of Hebrews, but you'll hear some pastoral wisdom and even some interesting nerdy discussion about Bible translation. Dr. Schreiner is one of the major figures behind the Christian Standard Bible. Listen in. It's my privilege to have on the Bible Study Magazine podcast today a scholar whose work I've used for many years, Dr. Tom Schreiner. And I really think that for many of our listeners on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, he will need no introduction, but his one of his newest books may. This is Hebrews in the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary. That'll be the focus of our discussion today. It is put out by Lexham Academic, Lexham Press. I'm standing in the offices of Lexham Press right now. I'll just jump in then by asking Dr. Schreiner to introduce himself in a way. Dr. Schreiner, how do you currently and how have you in the past served the body of Christ? Yeah, I've been at Southern Seminary as a New Testament professor in Louisville, Kentucky since 1997. Before that, I taught 11 years in St. Paul, Minnesota at Bethel Seminary. And before that, I taught three years at a school in Los Angeles uh, called Azusa Pacific. I also served as a preaching pastor at our church from 1998 through 2015. And I'm still an elder in the church and involved. So that that's what I've been doing and it's been a great privilege. Yes, and your ministry through writing especially, of course, has come my way numerous times over the years. I think the first Schreiner book that I got was your work on Paul but I also have uh, commentaries by you in Logos Bible Software that I use in my own preaching and Bible teaching ministry. I'm very grateful, and I think our listeners will benefit from your uh, wisdom and your experience in Bible teaching, and in particular, in particular in the area of biblical theology. And I've been asking every guest on this season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast to explain to me real simply, and it you know almost never is simple, what is biblical theology? How would you define it? I would say biblical theology could be defined as considering the, I think maybe the simplest way to say it is you you follow the storyline of the Bible. You follow the Bible's own story, its own progression. So I think it's sometimes helpful to contrast. In systematic theology, you might consider what does the Bible teach about the Trinity, which is a very important topic. But in biblical theology, we don't ignore the Trinity, but we look at the story as it unfolds. What does Genesis say to us? Then then how does Exodus contribute to that story? Uh, So there's an order. What is Leviticus doing in the story? And then even books like Job. I mean, Job's really not advancing the story, but what are what is job there for what contribution is it making uh, individually and to the whole so i think those are 
those are questions systematic theologians ask as well, but I think that's particularly the province of biblical theology to consider these things. So you're sounding a little bit like Jim Hamilton, whom I've also interviewed for this series. And uh, when we got to actually talk in person here at Faith Life, he was up here for, uh, to do a mobile ed course. We talked about this, that we want to honor the way that the Lord chose to reveal himself. You know, he could have written the Bible in the sky and not used people at all, but he used people and their individual backgrounds and their histories. And he used the circumstances to which, say, the prophets were speaking. All of the writers of the Bible presumably were addressing audiences. You bring this up in your Hebrews volume when you discuss who you think the, uh, the audience of the book might be. Let's talk about this evangelical biblical theology commentary. You know, of the making of many commentary series, there is no end. And if you go to bestcommentaries.com, I mean, I've, I've been using that site for years and years. And uh, the sheer number of commentary series, it's grown, you know, even in the, I don't know, 10 years that I've been using that site, grown noticeably. You're one of the general editors of the EBTC. What lack in existing commentaries does the EBTC try to address? Why does it need to exist? Yeah, well, I, I think you could say there's a sense in which does it have to exist? Probably not. The church would survive without it, right? But I do think we fill a lack in, in that I don't think there is any commentary series out there that is considering the contribution each book makes specifically in terms of biblical theology. So uh, I don't think every commentary has to do that. I'm not criticizing other commentaries, but I do think we uh, explore areas that other commentaries haven't explored. You know, most commentaries, they explain the verses, yeah, you know, they go verse by verse, but we have a section in each of these commentaries where we uh, describe what what is the author saying in terms of biblical theology. We try to relate it to the storyline of the Bible as a whole. So I think that is a significant and helpful contribution. Honestly, as one of the people who contributed, it was really challenging and exciting to uh, think that through when I wrote Hebrews. I loved, you know, I, I kind of sketched in the biblical story. And then how did Hebrews fit in with that? And what were its distinctive themes? That, that, was, uh, that was really fun to, to think and write about. I talked to Dr. Joe Sprinkle recently about his Daniel volume in the EBTC series, and we talked about the structure of the commentary. Uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Word Biblical Commentary series, which is the first one I remember noticing you know, years ago that kind of divvied up the way it approached the text into separate sections and uh, the way the EBTC is laid out. You've got your kind of classic exegesis, and I saw untransliterated Greek, so we are talking about something that demands a little bit of the reader, though I think everything else would be accessible even to people who haven't read Greek. And then in the back, you've got, well, I don't know how many pages here of biblical and theological themes. It starts on page 435 and goes till 500 or 499. Uh, and you list out the themes. I, I found that to be a very helpful way of first kind of focusing on the, the trees. Let's look at the exegesis and use our magnifying glass. 
and then broadening out to, I might not call it the forest, but the, the copse or the glade, like that particular, you know, clump of trees that we call Hebrews inside the biblical forest. I want to dive right into talking about something extremely specific, something that jumped out at me. I was just, you know, kind of leafing through here thinking, what portion of this amazing and lengthy book should we be talking about? And it just so happens that the issue of Bible Study Magazine that I am currently working on, finishing up, is all about the 75th anniversary of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's get nerdy and get into the Dead Sea Scrolls. Can you explain to me, you you mentioned this in the commentary, how the Dead Sea Scrolls help us follow what's going on in Hebrews 1.6, which you called one of the most disputed verses in the whole book. Yeah, well, that that is a fascinating discussion. So there, it, this is a nerdy discussion. We, we have our the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. But we know from Qumran, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have we have at least portions of other texts in Hebrews, in Hebrew, and we have we have an alternate version of uh, Deuteronomy 40, 32, 43. We we have an, we have the the text is expanded so that, that it includes a reference to the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, if I remember correctly, which uh, is also reflected in the um, Greek translation of the Old Testament. You, you could make an argument that that is the original text, and it's clearly reflected in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, because the author appeals to that verse in Deuteronomy and says, let all the angels of God worship uh, the Christ, and of course, the sons of God, another way of just uh, translating the sons of God, the sons of God in the plural, I would argue in the Old Testament, always refers to angels. One example is Job 38, I think it's verse 7, where uh, the sons of God sing for joy uh, on, the day, uh, on the days God created the world. And that's clearly the angels, human beings aren't created yet. So, um, so yeah, it's a, that is a complex issue, and we recognize that there are there are different texts being used, and of course, Old Testament. I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but Old Testament scholars really consider this issue of the, the different texts. Our, our texts are very good, by the way. I don't want anybody to think, oh, we, right. we don't know what these texts are saying. They're excellent and very well done, but there are there are some places where uh, we have to consider variant readings and at Qumran, and perhaps they reflect the original, especially when it's also confirmed by the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Right. I find that to be really useful. I have maybe a little bit more than a dilettantish interest in New Testament textual criticism. You've actually read my book, Authorize the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, and I had to talk in there for two pages about why I won't talk about textual criticism, but I've wanted to study up on it for my own purposes and to be ready to help both in that debate and with uh, lay Christians in my church who discover, whoa, wait a minute, what does this little footnote mean? Um, and what I've found is that the 
the greater and greater use of the Dead Sea Scrolls, even in the last, boy, just decade or 15 years. Um, I see it more frequently in footnotes in evangelical Bible translations. And several times, like in this case, it's actually brought in to help us resolve what was kind of a, a difficult, you know, conundrum. How is it that the New Testament is quoting an Old Testament passage but doing it wrong? And there was a case where I was appreciative of your nerdy explorations into the, the text and its history, going back, not just New Testament textual criticism, but pulling in the Septuagint, Masoretic text, and, and then the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's yeah. move back to uh, to biblical theology. I love biblical theology because it, it lays bare the connections among Bible books, the progress of divine revelation, as you were talking about, from seed to full tree. Mm. And I remember being excited to discover this field as a young man because it helped me see my Old Testament, especially, with new eyes. So my eyes eagerly lapped up Psalms like Psalm 45 after I understood what biblical theology is. But if you could have seen my eyes at the time, you would have seen a look of confusion because the same Psalm that says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a phrase that gets quoted in Hebrews 1.8 and that you discuss in your commentary, uh, obviously refers to Jesus there. That same Psalm goes on in just a few verses to say that the queen stands at the right hand of this king who was just called God. And Jesus was never married. So I, I wanna get some help for you in understanding the author of Hebrews' use of Psalm 45 there. And I, I wanna come at it from a particular angle. Sorry for the length of this question. No, that's good. I've, I've been uh, reading a legal scholar, uh, Stephen D. Smith, uh, who discusses originalism as, uh, I guess, a hermeneutic for uh, uh, approaching the Constitution. And he actually shows that asking, how would the original audience have understood this, lands you in some real complexities because those people are all dead. We can't consult them to find out how they, you know, responded to the original text. And it's unlikely they would all read it the same way anyway. But I was often taught in churches to put myself in the sandals of the original readers. So explain Hebrews 1.8's use of Psalm 45 and tell me what it does to our understanding of biblical hermeneutics. That that should all be easy. Wow. Yeah, that is, that is a great uh, question. I should say up front, scholars understand this text in various ways, especially in terms of how it is used in the Old Testament. But I think when we look at Psalm 145, I think the king, the king, right, is marrying this queen, a queen who is not from Israel, but the king is called God in this psalm. But clearly, as we read on in the psalm, the king is going to have descendants. So this king, not only is he going to be married, but he's going to have children. So I, I would argue there, in the original context, people debate what that original context means, but I would argue in the original context, the word, the word God means that the king represents God. That the, just as uh, in Exodus chapter 7, uh, the Lord says to uh, Moses, you're going to be God to Pharaoh. And actually, we have a, a number of examples in the, uh, in the uh, Pentateuch, Exodus, for example, where the human judges are called Elohim, gods, which I don't think means they were God per se, but that they represented God. So, I think that's what's happening in the Old Testament. Now, what's, what is happening then when we get to Hebrews? I think what's happening 
is uh, we have an example here of what I would call sort of typological escalation, which, which the king, right, we have, a, we have a whole theology of kingship in the Old Testament from the Davidic covenant. So we know, we know there's a promise from 2 Samuel 7 that there's going to be a, a man on David's throne forever. That promise is finally fulfilled in the, in the climactic king, which is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus who is called the Christ. That promise is not only fulfilled in the sense that Jesus is the king, but also he's divine. So I think the author of Hebrews is reading what is said there, and he says, look, this, this is the part that's controversial. This, what is written there, yes, I think if we ask the author of Hebrews, we don't know who that is, but if we could ask him, I think he'd say, yes, it had a particular meaning in its historical context, but also, the, the literal wording of that text is also true in another sense, in a deeper sense than the first readers would have anticipated. So I think that takes place in a number of places in the New Testament. I would argue Psalm 16, the great psalm of the resurrection. I think that psalm related to David's life too, but it, it's literally true in a deeper and more profound way of Jesus. So that's my take on it. You know, Mark, you probably know from reading, not everyone would agree with my explanation. It's a, that's a difficult problem. Uh, but what it does say to us hermeneutically is I think New Testament authors extend, I don't think contradict, but extend the meaning of Old Testament text beyond what original readers would have thought. And yeah, not everyone agrees with that, but I think it's quite clear that they do that. Yeah, this is such a both difficult but also interesting problem and enriching one to tackle the, the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. For me personally, I just find myself frequently taking refuge in the, the sort of dual author idea that the Spirit authored this along with the uh, the original writer, and they're allowed to have overlapping intents. And it's sort of like that Venn diagram where the spirit can be saying more than what the, uh, uh, what the writer was. Um, I, I totally I, agree with that. I think that's a very helpful way of putting that. I, yes, we have a divine author, and, and I, I like what you said, overlapping uh, conceptions of what's being said. And if you want to explore some of the specifics there, dear listeners out there in Bible Study Magazine podcast land, you can get into them. And that's the way to do it, right? I mean, we can all talk about this in theory, but what's so helpful and necessary is to talk about the specific passages in which this happens, to try to observe carefully what the New Testament writers are doing with these Old Testament texts. And I don't think this is necessarily only the province of biblical theology, but because of its interest in the progress of Revelation, I think it's especially suited to uh, produce terminology like you just used, like typological escalation. That's something that didn't really, I didn't really understand until I had a biblical theological view. Something else that clicked for me recently that I wanted to mention to you, I was talking to um, the author of the Daniel volume in the uh, EBT series, and he really made me realize that I don't know why I didn't see this before, that contemporary Western Christians can find some real help 
in Daniel precisely because we are increasingly, at least I think, being forced to realize that we, like him, are sojourners and exiles. And this is a theme that you spot in the book of Hebrews and discuss in that biblical theology section at the back. What can Hebrews tell modern Christians as we, I assume you agree, find ourselves more and more out of step with the values of polite society, as in fact that society becomes impolite society when it comes to us? Can Mm. Hebrews prepare us to be pariahs? Yes, I I think so. And I think I'd also say that if we don't understand ourselves as exiles and sojourners, perhaps we've uh, bought into some false uh, narratives of who we are. Right, right. Uh, perhaps we've tied ourselves to a p- particular political entities and, and we've thought of ourselves as uh, part of our culture in a way that, that's never been true of, of believers, that of course, we participate in society and we want to be salt and light. But the scriptures remind us repeatedly, we, we, are, we are sojourners and aliens. We, so how does Hebrews help us? We're prepared to suffer. Right? We're, not, we're not shocked at suffering. So, sometimes when we are discriminated against, and that hurts, that's painful. We'd all acknowledge that. But sometimes when we're discriminated against, we're shocked. How, how could this possibly happen? Right. But the New Testament is and the Old Testament, the book of Daniel and, and other books, it's prepared us for this. We, we ought not to be surprised. We, we need God's grace, just as the, uh, the recipients of Hebrews needed God's grace. I mean, it, it was hard, and they were tempted to buckle in the midst of it. So... We can identify with the saints of old. We, if if we are suffering and we feel excluded and marginalized, well, we've had many brothers and sisters who've gone before us, and and Hebrews right. reminds us of this. Nothing, nothing, or as Peter says, picking up on the same theme, nothing strange hap- is happening to us here. This is this is what we were told would happen, and I think the. The response that is most interesting in our culture, as I already mentioned, is we're sometimes we're shocked. We're shocked. Why, why is this happening? Maybe we've gotten a little too cozy with our world. Right. I I often I, I would say exactly the same thing you just said, and you were making me think now of Hebrews eleven. I think that's what you were alluding to. You know, this cloud of witnesses who has gone before, who has suffered a kind of persecution. You know, of all kinds. And and Hebrews eleven just goes into you know excruciating detail about some of the things that they suffered. And what it points to is Moses who and Abraham who saw a better city, who had a better country. Uh, and and when I hear American Christians sometimes, and I'm trying not to get into partisan political disputes here, but just make a general observation, sometimes when I see them to be so shocked by uh, persecution that they face, or even that just any Christian might face, it might not even be them, I hear kind of a whine in there like, hey, this is our country. What are they doing with our country? Yes. And I want to say, wait a minute, the book of Hebrews or Jesus in the Beatitudes is saying, okay, yeah, this isn't just your country. This is your whole planet, but not yet. It's going to be. The meek will inherit the earth. And Abraham, even when he lived in the promised land, was seeking something better. So that was a theme that I was really glad that you brought out and I thought had really immediate uh, 
practical use in, in preaching. You've been a preaching pastor, not just a professor. You're still an elder in a local assembly. Do you think that the pastors and Bible study leaders who listen to this podcast should follow the structure, basically, of this commentary? Should they do exposition for the first, I don't know, you know, 20 weeks on Hebrews and then have five weeks tracing the theological themes? Or do you think that they should include synthesis of themes at some point during their series of expositional messages or Bible studies on Hebrews? Or should Bible teachers just go through the themes, calling in Bible passages as needed. What, what's your counsel for how practically mm, to mm. teach this kind of material to your church? Yeah, I, I recommend generally, I recommend doing expositional preaching that is moving, you know, section by section through a, a book like, like Hebrews. I don't think it would be, I think there's freedom here. I, don't, I think it would be fine to do the themes at the end. Uh, I probably, if I did it, would sprinkle them as I go. I mean, even the way I handled Hebrews 6, the way I decided to do it, a very we're going to talk about the warning passages, I know, uh, shortly. But um, I decided when I did Hebrews 6, I'm, I'm not going to play my hand that much in the exposition section, and I talked about it more in the theological section at the end. But if I was preaching, I wouldn't do that. I mean, if I was preaching, I'd have to bring in, okay, how does this relate uh, theologically? But I, so I, I, I'm a firm believer in, you know, the steady diet of preaching should be moving through books by sections. But I think there is a place for not doing that at times. Say you're, you're, you're covering themes that can still be expositional. That can still be rooted in the text. You know, I'm not just thinking of biblical theology here, but you, you could have a series on the Trinity. You know, that that that'd be helpful, or or you know, one of the themes in this in this book. So, I think the steady diet should be moving through books. But there's a yeah, there's a place. Some it depends on your context and what your background is. But some evangelicals seem to think, oh, if you're ever covering a topic, somehow you're being unfaithful. The only way to do it always is you're always moving through a book. I don't think that's true. I think there's a place. You could have a series on marriage. I mean, lots of different things. You could have a series on exile. So I would say, yeah, steady diet, moving through the books. But there, there's a place for looking at things topically, a 10-week series on the attributes of God, uh, then, you know, there's a lot of things you could do. So I, I, I want preachers to feel, you know, some freedom on that and not feel so constrained as if somehow I'm disobeying the will of God if I'm doing a topic of some kind. Right, yeah. I, I first encountered true expository preaching in a pastor that ended up being my pastor for 18 years uh, when he was taking us through the book of Ephesians. This was my freshman year in college. It took us five years on Sunday nights to get all the way through the, the book of Ephesians. And suddenly I kind of swung the pendulum over to that side and said, this is the only way that preaching should be done. But I recognize pastors are shepherds. They have some measure of freedom in determining where in the pastor, the whole pastor of God's word, should I be taking the sheep. Um, so I liked the structure of the commentary because it helpfully breaks out 
these two valid angles on the text of Hebrews, but I too found, I thought, if I'm going to be teaching this, um, I'm probably going to want to be pulling in those themes. And what I might do is maybe the first time a given theme comes up, like something related to Christology, um, I will expand on that topic using the insights from the biblical theology portion. Now, we will get to that question that I promise I sent you in advance, of course, about the warning passages, but we've, been, we've had such an efficient interview that I get to ask the question I was thinking of dropping if there wasn't sufficient time, and that relates actually to the acknowledgments. I always read the acknowledgments in any book. I don't know why. I always get something out of it. And your commentary on Hebrews has one. And now that I work for a publisher and I've contributed to and even edited a commentary, I have a better idea of how commentaries, you know, and commentary series come together. But there's one thing I don't have that you apparently do, and that is grad students or research assistants. So you thanked a few of them in the acknowledgments to this commentary. Can you just tell me, I'm just curious, maybe other readers would be too, what do research assistants actually practically do for you when you write a book or commentary? How, how does that work? I'll, I'll bet uh, many of our listeners, even if they'll never have one, would like to know. Oh yeah, and I saw this strange thing that you called a sabbatical. Where can I buy one of those? <laughs> Sabbaticals are, yeah, I'll, I'll answer that first. So. At Southern, if you teach for three years, you can take a semester off, or you could teach for six years and take a year off from teaching, and you can devote that time off. It's not it's not only time off, but you can devote it to writing. So that's been, what a blessing that's been. I had that at Bethel as well. So I always take it after three years, because I can't wait six years. And I, actually, I just had one last spring. I'm, I'm actually doing a big commentary in the book of Revelation and the sabbaticals. I get so much done on those because you have a concentrated time. So I had it from February 1st through the end of August. And obviously, you know, I went on vacation and did some other things. But mainly, mainly I spent full time. That was my job, right? Working on a commentary. And so... You know, t commentaries take time. And, and and another way of saying it is they take money. You know, in the past, maybe 30 years ago, people were saying, or 40, even evangelicals weren't writing much. But one reason is you need to finance people to write. Because if you're working full time and you have a family, you don't have time or energy to write. And so... I think sabbaticals are they're a wonderful gift for me as an author, but I'd also say they're an important investment for evangelicals to invest in scholars, and I'm, I'm a recipient of that, and I'm so grateful for that. Now, as to my research assistants, those are typically my doctoral students whom I love. They have been, what a blessing. I have usually around 10 at a time. Um, you know, very, some of them are teaching other places already and finishing up. But the way I use my, uh, they, my uh, Garrett fellows, as we call them, or assistants, they, they do all the things I don't want to do. <laughs> so that, so for example, I'll, they will organize my bibliography. You know, I'll just scatter it out and write down what I have and I'll say, would you organize this for me? And that's a very boring and tedious job and they do an excellent job at doing that. The other thing I have them do typically is 
I'll say, uh, these are the books and the articles I want from the library. So in the old days, they used to copy them for me, but now they'll send me a PDF and they'll check the books out. You know, I'm doing this in Revelation right now, checking out commentaries, monographs, sending me PDFs of articles. So that saves me an enormous amount of time. I do not use my research assistants. Some people do. I don't recommend it. I don't use them to read things for me because I want to read it myself and evaluate the argument. I don't use them to write anything for me. I, wanna, I want it to be my own work. Some people use research assistants for that. But honestly, I think you open yourself up to inadvertently plagiarizing right. doing that. Yes. I, I think that's happened to some authors. So um, they don't summarize other articles or books for me. Uh, I, I want to do all that myself. But they... But they're doing, as I said, that might be a little more interesting for an assistant, right? My, my students have done grunt work that isn't really interesting, but it saves me so much time. And uh, I'm so grateful for them because, you know, co copying those articles, getting those books, organizing a bibliography, or helping with footnotes, that's another place yeah. they might help format footnotes because I... Some commentaries, I just throw it in there, the page and the whatever, and then they fix it for me. So that 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 kind of thing, you you know, Mark yourself, that that takes a lot of time to do those sort of yes. things. Yes, I sure do. Yeah, I'm. I have a, a holy jealousy for you. I, I'm also. I'm mostly mostly just grateful. Actually, what you make me think of, I I'm reading for the second time through Andy Crouch's book, Playing God. And, uh, you know, he works for Christianity Today, and he's got a trio of books I found really helpful. And that book talks about the importance of institutions, how they collect and steward human power. And I grew up in a smaller denominational context, really an independent, you know, a loose affiliation of independent churches. And we just don't have any research professors, and there, there really isn't anything like what you're describing and I'm so glad there is. One thing I've argued to kind of my own hometown crowd is, okay, we've got our own emphases and we have our own strengths and that's wonderful. The Lord has given us these things and we need to magnify our office as the King James says. But aren't we glad that the Lord has instituted other sets of evangelical Christians like the Southern Baptist Convention, whose cooperative program, whatever other you know institutions they've put together, enable people like a Tom Schreiner to churn out the work that they've done. I just can't imagine having, uh, being a pastor, being a Bible teacher, even 40 and 50 years ago when there just weren't as many resources. Of course, they did find they had Calvin's commentaries, which, you know, are hard to surpass in some ways, but I can only see it as a strength of the institution in general we call evangelicalism, even if people don't think it exists. I think part of the proof is that we're, we're actually producing stuff. Anyway, uh, that's a footnote, kind of a rabbit trail. I was curious. Thank you for indulging my curiosity. Yeah, sure. Moving back to uh, to Hebrews, I've worked pretty hard to increase evangelical Christian trust in the major modern evangelical English Bible translations, and I can't fail to ask you about the Christian Standard Bible. It's receiving pretty wide praise, and I myself have read through it appreciatively. As I pull the focus back to Hebrews, in my humble estimation as a student and teacher of the Greek New Testament, Luke, Acts, and Hebrews have the hardest Greek. When I read mm. Hebrews or Luke and Acts in Greek, I feel like every individual clause 
has just kind of had its words rearranged, <clears throat> and yet I've tended to make the argument in defense of translations, easy to, easier to read translations like the CSB, that God chose to use contemporary vernacular Greek, and we should therefore translate the Bible into contemporary vernacular English. So talk to me as a linguist and commentator and translator, how does the difficulty in the Greek of Hebrews impact translation? Should Hebrews in English be a little bit harder to read than, say, a book well-known for its simple Greek, like Revelation? Yeah, what, what I would say, and you can, you can, I'd love to hear you push back on this a little bit or just interact with me. I would say I think, I think for at least Hebrews, it's inevitable. Not maybe, it's inevitably a little bit harder to read. I, I, I don't think though it's harder to read in English because in, we, we, we have to put it in a, an idiom, uh, the kind of syntax and so forth and so on that contemporary people can understand unless you're trying to do a very literal translation, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but that's not what the CSB is about. We're trying to communicate clearly what we call optimal equivalence uh, a way that communicates uh, with uh, with readers today, but I think they're going to feel like okay, the syntax in Hebrews, or at least the concepts in Hebrews, they're harder than First John, be because there there is some match, uh, almost inevitably, between the translation and the original, and and Hebrews is more complicated now that. You mentioned Acts. I think that would be maybe different in Acts because it's narrative. A lot of it is, at least. But in Hebrews, the concepts are hard for people. I think Hebrews is one of the most forbidding books for people in the New Testament because of the subject matter. Melchizedek, Levitical priesthood. I mean, no, nobody, you, we've never met a Christian who says, you know, I really want to go back to the Levitical priesthood. So, <laughs> that's not a temptation. So I would say there's some match there. I think that's somewhat inevitable, inevitable between the, the, the syntax and the way we translate it. Yeah, you invited pushback, and I don't have any pushback. I think I, no. I have a reflection maybe I could offer. I mean, I, I disagree with what you said. I just agree, just in case you thought I said disagree. I just agree. No. Um, I don't know how you would reflect the more difficult syntax uh, in English, because the reason it can happen in Greek is due to a linguistic feature that just doesn't exist in English. That is, or at least in contemporary English, I, you can, because of the case system, you can switch subjects and objects around and you can put them out of what is a more familiar order for us in English and that's okay. The message still comes across in Greek because they're marked for their function in the sentence. But English uses word order to communicate some of those things. So you really can't just willy-nilly, you know, uh, rearrange the, uh, the words in a sentence. I think what you're saying, though, is that um, because the content itself of Hebrews carries this difficulty, we end up doing the same 
kind of thing, at least in the book of Hebrews. I was curious if anybody else had kind of noticed the same thing and wondered, is there a way to reflect this in English? I think of Robert Alter. You know, he is so, he's, he's not a Christian. He's, a, I believe, a secular Jewish uh, scholar. Um, he's yes. done this, you know, translation of the entire Old Testament that's been really acclaimed. And what he's so good at is paying really careful attention to the literary devices that are mm. present in the Hebrew. I kind of have wondered, is the choice mm. of mm. elevated style in Hebrews itself part of the theological message? And again, like what would that practically mean? I'm not sure I really have an answer to that. I don't know, does that clarify what I was bringing up yeah, or raise any I, more I, uh, answers for you? Yeah, I think we should try to approximate that in our translation, for example, when 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 we translate the Psalms, just another illustration of this, the poetry and the beauty. I think we need to re retain. Um, I'm I'm trying to remember exactly. I'm, I'm thinking of an example, like in Psalm 139. You know, the wings of the dawn. And I think one one translation, maybe it was even an earlier version of the CSB, translated it as like the the e the east or something. Like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, yes, there's a place for translating idioms into English, but there's also a place for rendering the poetry of the text. So that translating, I'll tell you one thing that happened to me, Mark, and you've done a lot of work on this yourself. Tra working on the, the the CSB, which was a revision of the HCSB, it made me feel very loath to criticize other translations because right. I realized this is so hard. This right. is so. This is. There's so many decisions to make in terms of this is communicate, but then is it accurate? And that there's more than one way to do this, and. And I realized I've been too quick, even as a professor, to trans to criticize other translations. Oh, this is not good. Uh, when I when you actually get involved in doing it, the complexity is astonishing. And and we do recognize the King James. What a beautiful, amazing translation. Right. But we need new translations because the. We, we don't speak King James English anymore. Uh, right. the, the things have changed. So as beautiful you're, as it is, and, and we have better texts as well. Right. I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir director here on that one, right, as, right, as you know. Right, right. Uh, and I'm just in total agreement and have to amen that by saying, I really wish I could just bottle up what you just said and and create a vaccine that I could inject into every Christian um, that that makes them loathe to criticize evangelical English Bible translations because of the great complexities involved. And the answer could be, well, we have one, the CSB that is now the one ring to rule them all. But that's I don't that's never the attitude I've gotten from you or any promoters no. of the CSB. Um, I do get that from some other contemporary translation uh, uh, folks. Um, I could tell stories. Anyway, I like the idea that because of those complexities, I'm sure glad that I have the CSB providing an angle and the HCSB and the ESV and the ASB providing an angle. I could go on and on about that. We need to get back uh, to the, Hebrews. And, and the NIV, yeah. Uh, and the yeah. NIV, yeah. 
I would say, I mean, even today, I taught something this afternoon on a text, and I was using the CSB, and I love it, but I actually found a verse where I said, I don't think we translated this very well. Uh, you know, just the way we rendered it, I think, well, yeah, they're, they're, we, we, we could change that. And we're helped, we're helped by looking at a lot of different translations. So right. we have an embarrassment of riches. That's what I tell the students. Absolutely. We, we, we are so blessed to have the NASB, the, the uh, NIV, the CSB, the NLT, uh, yes. The Net Bible. There's, there's, the the NRSV. I have found to be very helpful as well. I, so, yeah. What a what a blessing that is to us. Right. I mean, only the Bible is worth that kind of attention. Right. Multiple translations. You'll see uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey coming out in multiple translations and multiple kinds of translations. But of course that doesn't sell in anything like the numbers that the Bible does. And people who need that injection of this vaccine that I'm uh, creating, uh, they often lament, you know, why do we have to have so many? And I think of it sort of the same way I think about commentaries. It's like you said, you know, okay, technically, yeah, we don't need this other one, but it is a sign of health and vitality when a Christian community, that would be the English-speaking Christian church, is able to produce so many books, so many Bible translations, especially done by careful scholars like you. And let's give you an opportunity to demonstrate some more of that careful scholarship, um, that pastorally inclined and theologically inclined scholarship. You've worked hard on the warning passages in Hebrews. I was raised and schooled in a conservative evangelical Christian environment, independent churches, and when after my graduate work I moved to faith life, I moved into a different kind of evangelical bubble, one that probably has more denominational space in it, but a bubble nonetheless. And yet, despite my, you know, R30 evangelical insulation, social media has shown me numerous apostasies from among my personal acquaintances. Just feels like a punch in the gut college roommate who left his wife and is openly homosexual and unbelieving, a seminary student I sang with at churches we traveled around together in a quartet and whose wedding entourage I appeared, who also left his wife and children and left the faith. I mean, I, I could go on and on. I'm sure you could too. You said, and I quote, that Hebrews is a sermon and exhortation in epistolary form. The author urgently exhorts the readers to hold fast to their faith, to persevere to the end. How do I bring that message of Hebrews to bear on people to whom I preach without browbeating them? And, and how does Hebrews help me handle it when people nonetheless fall into apostasy? Yeah, that, that is a huge question. I would, and, a, and an excellent question. I think uh, what, what I would say, you, we recognize there, there are different takes interpretations of these warning passages. You know, Arminians would argue that people actually do fall away and commit apostasy. I am not an Arminian, but I always say to the students, look, that's an orthodox reading. There's, it's part of the orthodox tradition, and that's a respectable interpretation, and we all understand why. When we read Hebrews, some people read the text that way. Um, there's a very strong reform tradition that interprets the warnings 
to say from Hebrews 6 in particular, those who are addressed are, are not Christians. They're almost Christians. They're close. They're very close. And that's why they've fallen away. And that interpretation goes back to Calvin and John Owen and all, all the luminaries in the Reformed tradition and probably best expressed today in a relatively recent essay by Wayne Grudem, who's argued this case. I have a different understanding of the warning passages. I take the warning passages to be a, yes, they're warnings, but they're encouragements to continue to trust in Jesus. So one way I could put it is Hebrews 11 is the warn, are the warning passages in reverse. The warning, the warning is don't deny Jesus or he'll deny you. Hebrews 11, another way of putting that is keep trusting him. So the, 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 I'm using more homely illustrations, but the warning passages are like cattle prods to keep us in line, right? They're not. He's not saying to the readers, you're not Christians. She's saying, um, don't jump over the cliff. It, don't drink the poison. That's loving. You know, I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon. It, in one way, it'd be very fun to jump in, wouldn't it? I mean, for a few seconds anyway. It could be quite enjoyable floating through the air. But at the end, it wouldn't turn out so well. That's what Hebrews is saying. So that's not, he's not, I don't think he's browbeating the readers or, or, or I don't think he's angry with the readers. It's, it's loving to say, don't, don't go this way. I like, you know, for a number of reasons, interpretively, I favor my interpretation of the warnings. But one of the things I like about it is he's not, he's not saying to the readers, Maybe you're not a Christian. A lot of people read the warnings that way. I respect that view. But, he, but he's not calling them to be introspective. Maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe it's all been a fake. Uh, there's a place for self-examination. I'm not denying that. But I think the warnings are fundamentally a way of saying keep, keep trusting Jesus. Keep walking with him. I, when I teach on this, I use the illustration of when my kids were little, I'd say, don't run, in, don't run into the street or I'll discipline you. But when I said that, I wasn't saying to my kids, are you alive? You, you, which is what many people turn the warnings into. I was saying, don't run into the street. That, that doesn't mean I don't love them. And, it's, and I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, reproving them per se. I'm just encouraging them to continue to walk with Jesus. So I think the warning, you know, we could read the warnings as there's sort of a call to be super Christians, you know, don't fall away. But they're not a call to be a super Christians. They're a call to keep trusting. Now, let me say something about those who have fallen away. Yes, we all know those stories. Of course, I have beloved friends who are in that situation as well. The warning passages were not given for us to assess um, finally where people are, right? In, in other words, yeah, I've had friends who've fallen away and have come back. It's very hard to tell while they're away 
what their true state is before God. But I think what we can say, we can say in every case, no matter who we're talking to, unbeliever, apparent believer, repent and believe. My job isn't to finally determine their uh, their final destiny. I can say I'm worried about you. I'm I have concerns. This this is the danger. Then then the second thing I'd say is we have to recognize that warnings are prospective. Hmm. Warnings are warnings. They're admonitions. They look ahead at life, and they warn you about what is to come. That that's their grammatical function. If you jump into the Grand Canyon, you will die. Many people read warnings as if they're declarations, but linguistically, grammatically, they're not declarations, they're warnings. That when he says, when I say, if you jump, jump into the Grand Canyon, you'll die, I'm not saying you've jumped into the Grand Canyon. I said, if. And so the, the, there's a pastoral function to the warnings. I do not believe the author of Hebrews reflects on those who've actually fallen away. I don't think that's the function of what he's doing grammatically, linguistically, pastorally. There are other texts that do that. Uh, there are other texts that consider those who've fallen away. And I, you know, one of the, I'd, I'd use two examples. In 1 John, we have, we have believers or apparent believers who've left the community. And then John looks at them retrospectively. And he says, they've, they've gone out from us, for they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be apparent that, that they all are not of us. Now, that wasn't apparent at the beginning. But John says, ultimately, retrospectively, we see that they were not truly of us. Now, an Arminian would say they lost their salvation. Well, I don't read it that way. I don't think that's heresy. That, that is a long tradition in the church. I respect and honor that view. I, I think there's too much in our, there, there are heresies, right, I believe, but we've got to be careful about calling something heresy that we just disagree with, that it has a long tradition in the history of the right. church. So that's a, that's a valid view. You know, we actually agree on something very important, both Arminians and the more Reformed agree that if you've fallen away, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> right. You know, th th that is very important. You know, we, we like to talk about what we disagree about, but we both agree anyone yeah. who's fallen away, did they lose their salvation? I think not. But if they did, in either case, we, what we agree on is really significant. So yeah, yeah. Another another passage in Matthew, Jesus talks about those who prophesy in His name, those who cast out demons, those who do miracles. But at the end, He'll say, "Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you." Well, I think that passage is very significant with the word "never." He doesn't say, "I knew you," and uh, now I don't. He says, mm -hmm. "I never knew you." So there's, there, there, those retrospective passages tell us, yes, there are people in our churches who appear to be believers. Ultimately, we see retrospectively they are not. I don't think we should be suspicious of people. I don't think we should try to figure out now who that might be. I think that's a, a vain endeavor. 
And I agree with Calvin. Calvin said we should exercise the judgment of charity. I mean, I'm an elder, and everybody who joins our church, they give our testimony. Right. And I don't say to them when they tell me their testimony, I doubt that. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe you. You know, you're making this up. Unless I had super good grounds to say that, which I never yeah. have had. So, so I, to return to Hebrews, Hebrews just isn't giving us that retrospective picture. And I think what a lot of evangelicals want, they want every passage to do everything. So hmm. when they come to Hebrews, they want to ask the retrospective question. That's a fine question to ask. But I, I'm saying that's not what Hebrews is trying to do. Good. He, Good. He, 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 that's not the function. Yes, include the whole canon. You may want to even say in your sermon the retrospective vision. But he, I, I summarize the warning passages in Hebrews like this. Jesus said, if you deny me, I'll deny you. That's the warnings in, in, in brief, isn't it? If you, deny, if you fully and finally deny Jesus, because Peter denied Jesus, right? So right, I, right. I, I, I want to add, if you fully and finally deny Jesus, there's a lot of room in there, right, for a Peter to repent after denying Jesus. But if you fully and finally deny Jesus, he'll deny you. That's, Jesus isn't saying in that warning, he's not saying, now, uh, were they really saved and all those questions. He's, he, the warning is meant to warn you. That's the function. That's excellent. Yeah. I cannot believe after all these years studying the Bible, reading the commentaries, no one's ever brought that to my attention or I didn't note it about Jesus' phrase, I never knew you. That was really helpful. And I appreciate you gently, in a way, pushing back on my question because it's okay for me to come to Hebrews with the question, hey, what do I make of this apostasy of my friend? And Hebrews' answer is, hey, I'm not actually giving the retrospective on this and I'm not uh, I'm not giving the full and final judgment. You make me think of Tim Larson up at uh, Wheaton, wrote a book a couple years back about 19th century Victorians who uh, apostatized and then actually came back to faith. And there were a number of prominent individuals who had done this. So I'm not going to name names. There's a major Christian leader who had a major positive impact on my life who in the last couple of years publicly apostatized. And I have not given up praying for him. And I have certainly mm -hmm. not joined in the pylon of some Christians saying, well, he was just in it for the fame. I just think that's a retrospective that only Jesus can give. And I'm going to presume like Abraham did when he is, you know, bargaining with God for Sodom that uh, that God's in God's intent is to be merciful. That was really mm. pastoral. That was theological. That was exegetical. That's everything that you're supposed to do and that you were paid to do. Not really, just not kidding uh, or kidding. You weren't paid to come on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, but that's why we have you on because you have these gifts to share with the church. I'm really grateful. I wanted to make one more comment about what you just said and then uh, provide you one final opportunity. Just tell us anything from the book of Hebrews that strikes you. So think about that while I make this final comment. Um, when you were talking through these warning passages, you made several references to different interpretive traditions that have existed a long time in the Christian church. And, and something to be said for them is that they have existed for a long time. Mm -hmm. the, the slogan of Bible Study Magazine, I just got it changed from uh, get into the word, which is fine, to study the Bible with the best tools. And in my mind, that means books like this one, that's a kind of tool I have. 
And it also means conceptual tools, whether that's linguistic tools or hermeneutical tools. And you just gave a great example of one of the key hermeneutical tools, which is tradition. It is okay to say how, and I think it's humble to say, how has the church received this part of scripture over time? I like to check, check the ancient Christian commentary on scripture on occasion, uh, really regularly, just to see, okay, someone in a total different, different circumstance, how, how did they read this? And I like um, uh, Waltke uh, and several others whose names are not coming to me, maybe Johnson on, on Psalms have done this. They've done a reception history. And it's important to be able to say not, I'm setting aside all tradition, because that's not possible, but to say, okay, here's my tradition, here's how we take this, or here are the various reformed options, but I got to acknowledge if I was in that other tradition, the Arminian tradition, I would see it this way. I just wanted to show, like, point out to all the listeners, did you see how humbly and clearly Dr. Schreiner was able to speak when he used that conceptual tool of tradition and reception history? Thank you for that. Now, thank you for your time. Anything you'd like to leave us with from the book of Hebrews, Dr. Schreiner? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question, Mark. I think I'd like to say, I think readers struggle with chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. Like, what's going on? It's a long theological argument on the priesthood. So, I just, this is something I say to my classes. You know, all the theology in the book serves the warnings. If it's a sermon... So the theology is the foundation for the sermons. So I'd just like to say a quick little word on chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. It's, uh, it's a little bit overly simplistic, but I think it's helpful to think big, you know, because I think we can say, oh, chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is superior to angels. It's better. Actually, that's his favorite word, right? Better. Jesus is better than angels. Chapters 3 and 4, he's better than uh, Moses and Joshua, chapters 5 through 10, he is the, he's the better priest. But we can think of it like this. Chapter 7, uh, Jesus is uh, the better priest, right? He's the Melchizedekian priest. Chapter 8, better covenant. Chapters 9 and 10, better sacrifice. I like, I like to frame it that way because my experience is people get lost in those chapters. What's going on? So I just say, hey, think big picture for a minute. You know, delve into the verses, but think better priest, chapter 7, Melchizedekian priest. Better covenant, chapter 8, new covenant, verses old, Jeremiah 31. Better sacrifice, chapters 9 and 10. His sacrifice is better than the Levitical sacrifices. And I think that gives you, uh, you know, that broad vision that'll help you negotiate those pretty complicated chapters. There's a nice outline of the book of Hebrews here in your commentary, and that's a good foretaste of what you'll get if you get the commentary. I'm not just here to sell stuff. I think people know that. Uh, I push resources that I think are going to be beneficial, and I've benefited from this work. Dr. Schreiner, thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for the little exhortation and sort of big picture help in the outline of Hebrews you gave just now. Thank you for your time. May the Lord bless your continued work for his church and give you even more sabbaticals. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Great being with him.
Dr. Tom Schreiner is a gracious man who clearly loves the Lord, loves Christ's sheep, and loves the scriptures. He has worked hard to dig into the book of Hebrews and bring out treasures new and old. What can I do except encourage you to pick up the fruit of his labor, the Hebrews volume in the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary series? I'm holding a physical copy, but I'm going to give this right back to the coworker from whom I borrowed it because I don't use paper commentaries except as props and videos. I love using my many commentaries in Logos Bible software. That's where I personally would encourage you to get this book. But you know, you do you. If you like paper, more power to you. Just get this book and may the Lord bless your study of the rich and wonderful book of Hebrews. Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ward, and it's been my privilege to serve you. My final calls to action are that you go to logos.com basic to get a free copy of Logos Bible software with some free books, and then join us for our next discussion about biblical theology wherever you get your podcasts.